This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny K, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? It's that time. We got a hell of a show for you. As always, I'm joined with Luke Summers and Steve Playtech. What's up, guys? What's going on? What's up, Danny? We got John Wellborn on the show. What's happening, hey. John? And we got a special guest, Tom Inkledon. How you doing? Excellent. How are you guys today? We're good. We're rolling. We uh been having some pretty good conversations off the air. We're about nine right? minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the most interesting one, though, is uh, Luke's awesome Halloween costume. Uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, man, I got to give it I got to give you props, because when I first saw the picture, I kind of thought that wasn't Hacksaw. And then one quick Google and you pretty much nailed it. So uh, I apologize. The the costume has been eight months in the making of no haircut. And then I haven't shaved for maybe months. And it's perfect. I mean, people legit came up for my autograph thinking I was the Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Nice. Is the haircut <laughs> you the, for the ghostly white legs? Well, I'm sorry I don't uh, I don't wear my Speedo in public. That's a, you know, that's a... <laughs> Daddy, why didn't you notice that? <laughs> I saw the picture. stuff, Daddy. <laughs> Crazy. So what else is new, guys? Well... We had, uh, you know, the morning crew Saturday morning at 8.3. We just have, like, two classes, and um, the morning wad was Kalsu. Everybody thanks me for writing that one for them to do. Um, I capped it at 35 minutes. Two people attempted the RX week. Um, You know, you guys put 135 out there. uh, For women, I just have them go at 95. And nobody was, they weren't able to finish in under 35 minutes. The people who finished scaled the weight down to, you know, like 115, 75 or something like that. But And for those who don't uh, know, Kalsu is 100 thrusters per time at 135. And every minute you have to do four burpees? Five burpees. Five burpees. At the top, every minute, five burpees. Stop wherever you're at and, uh, and then continue. That's my, dude, that's, that's, I hate that workout. Dude, so for the people who who tried at RX and ran out of time, at 35 minutes, that's 175 burpees you end up doing on top of whatever amount of thrusters. I think uh, the one girl got like 86 thrusters and the, the guy got in the 70s. So that's a shit ton of work to do. Yeah, this um, But it's a great workout. Both the, the CrossFit football hero odds are fucking awesome. I mean, Tillman will kick right in the balls. Yeah, yeah. Cassie's like probably. Yeah, there's one more. There's also the Winchester workout. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I think I want to say it's uh, overhead walking lunges. Is that it? It's, uh, yeah, I'd have to look it up. We haven't programmed it in a while. We got to probably pull some of those out, but, you know, it is what it is. 
So yeah. uh, let's get this thing rolling. With no further ado, let's uh, let's uh, ask Dr. Tom to introduce himself and give a little history, and I'll tell you how I met Dr. Tom and how our relationship's kind of gone in the last couple of years, and then uh, you know, kind of what are the things he's been working on, and uh, I, I really think the Power Athlete Nation it would be super interested to hear what Dr. Inkledon has to say, and he's spoken at uh, several CrossFit football seminars, and uh, people always seem to really like him. So, uh, Tom, can you give us a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a Bronx boy. Grew up at, uh, in the Bronx, New York City. I grew up uh, extremely, extremely poor. And the significance of that is the only thing I really know how to do is work very hard. And uh, somehow from that humble beginning, I've managed to uh, go to schools around the United States, get five degrees in different fields. And I've had the uh, really, really cool pleasure and unique opportunity of working with uh, the brightest minds in exercise physiology and sports performance. Um, these are, you know, MDs, MD, PhDs, and some of the basic science areas, guys have won uh, Nobel prizes. So just people that really think differently than the average person. And uh, the core focus of, you know, a common thing that all these guys had is they just wanted to figure out how to make people into freaks in a way that was uh, efficient, quick, and maybe inexpensive in some cases. Like if you're responsible for programming thousands of people, you know, you, you may not be able to have a ton of money that you could spend on each individual person. And uh, got a chance to publish all kinds of cool studies when I was at Penn State. We studied, you know, all kinds of ways to train the human body with weights that would affect hormone responses. We published all kinds of data on how to improve the body's ability to produce testosterone. And for my own selfish purposes, I, I used every bit of data I could so I could jack up and maximize my own testosterone levels. Uh, so it was, it was really fun being in the lab at that point because every day, you know, you come in, there's a new research project and we're trying to piggyback into some of these studies so we could figure out ways how to, you know, increase our own testosterone levels. One of the cool claims to the fame of, of the lab at that point is we claim to have the world's strongest sports science lab. Everybody there could squat at least 500, bench at least 300, and deadlift at least 500. And uh, for a bunch of lab geeks that were not on steroids, those are pretty good numbers, you know, compared to a lot of our other partners in other labs who maybe weren't lifting anything, you know, at that level. Then um, from Penn State, went to uh, University of Miami, got a chance to meet some really bright guys in the medical sciences departments there. And I did all kinds of really cool studies on individual muscle fibers, and we could actually see at a molecular and a cellular level the cool things that creatine and other dietary supplements could do to actually help people get uh, bigger, faster, stronger. And today, um, I have uh, a center in uh, Arizona, in Scottsdale, Arizona, where we got all kinds of freaky gadgets and you know training equipment to figure out all kinds of ways that we could help our clients reach their goals. So that's kind of uh, you know a little bit of a summary of everything. Nice. Uh, you know, you, uh, Tom, it's nice to hear you say that you guys are the strongest uh, lab. Um, being a college professor, we have an exercise science department. And um, oftentimes students will ask me, like, first they ask dumb questions, like, do you work out? And then, like, what do you eat or whatever? And they're like, well, that's not what I learned in exercise science. And I always say to them, well, go look at your exercise science professors and then look at me. 
And they're all like fat <laughs> turds. You know what I mean? Like probably couldn't run a mile without dying. Certainly couldn't squat anything more than yeah. a bar. You know, back when, um, so I have uh, 23 years of college education and I say that not to brag, but just to show you my ability to handle pain because that was not a pleasurable experience for being in school for that long. But one of the things that struck me very, very early on in my academic career was that, you know, I was training with some of the strongest guys in the world. And, and these guys, for the most part, they're not going to impress you with these, you know, they didn't have PhDs. They weren't super intelligent, but they knew how to get bigger and stronger. What they had was a lot of practical experience. They may not be able to articulate the molecular mechanisms involved in, you know, transmitting information from one part of the body to another. But when I would go to school, I would have my professors say things like, you cannot change ATP levels and you can't, you know, extra protein won't help you add muscle. And then I go and these guys are like, well, take creatine, it'll increase ATP and you'll get more reps or eat this protein, you'll add more muscle. And, you know, you couldn't help but look at these guys were getting bigger, <laughs> they were getting stronger. And I got my professors saying it won't work. And that's what kind of, you know, I followed what some of the athletes that I was training with were doing because you could see the results in front of you. What I learned, though, was that the professors, you know, they were approaching the problem from a different perspective and because they did not have real world experience doing stuff that the athletes were doing. So when they would approach a problem, let's say training, they didn't quite do it exactly the way that someone might do it that was actually working out. So they may be involved in research and it may be valuable, but it, it might have been from a perspective that maybe wasn't very practical. So as an example, there's been guys that have done studies on how to take fast twitch muscle fibers and make them slower. And they can show, yeah, we can make this fast twitch fiber convert into a slower twitch fiber. But what athlete wants that to happen? Everybody wants it the opposite. Even a marathon runner still wants to move faster than the guys he's competing against. So the practical application of some of the data or the research that's being done sometimes you know, it's guys that have good intentions, but maybe they don't understand because they don't work out themselves. And that's where I think, you know, your better research groups, they, they, they live it, they breathe it in their own lives, and they do research on top of it. They have a practical understanding as well as a scientific understanding, and they could, you know, put it all together, maybe a little bit better than guys that are not, that are just one or the other. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a purely academic approach as opposed to, like you said, uh, an academic and an applied approach is uh, only half the battle. Yeah. Yeah. So I like how you um, you've talked about creatine because believe it or not, even even last night, um, I still get people who who will ask me like what my opinion is on creatine. You know, they're, they're still like uncertain of it. Some people think it's right up there with like an anabolic steroid. And there just seems to be a lot of uh, like misconception on that. And um, I mean, creatine, I've used it since shit, like 93 or something. The first started coming around. Um, I, I like how you've talked about it. And it sounds like, uh, you know, you got some experience with that. And it's definitely a good thing. Would you yes. agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, I, the one thing I will, um, it's, it's funny because this morning I had a, a medical colleague ask me some stuff about creatine because he gets some um, questions in his practice and he wasn't quite sure how to respond. And so what I'll say structurally creatine is an amino acid, but functionally it, it resembles more the function of glucose or carbohydrate in a human body. So like if you eat um, some carbohydrate and the body somehow converts that carbohydrate into glucose and glucose goes into the muscle cell and draws water into it, that is all considered a good thing. But somehow when you ingest a food that contains creatine or creatine supplement and that creatine travels from, from digestion, it gets into the blood and so you have absorption taking place there and then it's transported to let's say a muscle cell and as creatine gets inside the muscle cell it goes through a process called uh, phosphorylation or basically the body just adds a larger molecule so now you have creatine phosphate and that draws water into the cell somehow that's considered a bad thing that's actually a very healthy biological response it's something you want to occur and years ago, there were all kinds of ridiculous statements that we had to address with some of the different boards and research groups I was part of. One was that creatine was responsible for some deaths of some athletes. We investigated the athletes were not even taking creatine. Um, it was just poor coaching, and they wanted to blame something else other than the coaches stepping up and admitting they were abusing their, their athletes. Um, and two, we heard a lot about creatine-inducing muscle cramping. So we actually, we did muscle fiber studies where we actually pulled muscle fibers out of human beings before, during, and after taking creatine. And there's no doubt if your creatine stores are not optimal, which most people, they're not going to be optimal. When you start taking creatine, there is muscle fiber hypertrophy defined as fibers, just the cross-sectional area got larger. So if we define it as hypertrophy, that's what happened. Whether it's water or protein strands or something else, doesn't matter. The fibers got bigger. And then the other thing is that people taking creatine actually cramped up less than people that were not taking creatine. So now when you compare what's found in a research setting, and now you look at what's happening, you know, guys will always uh, work a lot of athletes that are playing baseball and football at a professional level. And they'll say, oh, I took this product and I cramped up. They're not doing quality controlled study designs. You know, they're, they're self-experimenting where they tried something. They don't have their same body in the exact same environment taking the same one, you know, product one day in the same conditions another day and not taking a product. They don't have that type of comparison. They just simply know maybe they didn't cramp recently, they took something and they started cramping. So you might conclude, oh, this is causing me to cramp. But one of the things is that the products on the market right now they contain so much more than just creatine in them. And one of the possibilities is if you have like 50 things in one formula and you throw it into the, the stomach, you're going to change all kinds of osmotic forces. You could actually pull water out of the blood into the lumen of the digestive tract. So if you're getting, you know, if you're pulling water out because you've got a variety of amino acids and other types of substances, it might induce dehydration, but that's not a, and which may cause cramping. That's not a problem with creatine per se. It's because you had a bunch of idiots selling supplements that claim they know what they're doing and they really don't. They're just throwing glorified stuff in a product, putting a fancy label on it, getting people to buy it. So that's not a problem of creatine per se. That's more 
you know, misbranding, mismarketing. You got people saying, you know, we have all these biochemists. You call the company, you say, who's the biochemist? They don't even know what you're talking about because they can't even spell the word. So you, you realize then it's it's not a, a creatine per se. It's people are being deceived as far as what the benefits of the product are. I know. I know. I had a, uh, I hate going into GNC stores in this area, you know, because it's, as soon as you walk in, they're just all over you and they want you to buy like, you know, all their supplements. And some days I, when I am forced to go in there, I'll, you know, I'll be like, all right. And I'll just kind of call the guy out. You know, these supplements are so great. Walk up, turn it around, start naming off everything that's on the label and half of it's just loaded with sugar. So it tastes good, you know? And like you were saying, if there's 50 different um, ingredients in you know, some kind of drink that is supposed to like transfer the creatine into your, you know, cells quicker, you know, all the chemicals that are in that drink are like sugar, you know, uh, all kinds of crap carbs and stuff that you don't even need. You know, it's a joke of what they're putting out there on the market and saying that, you know, a, a person needs to achieve, you know, whatever their goals and fitness are. Hey, uh, can I change gears real quick? Cause I think that, um, yeah, creatine's awesome. And I think anybody who's, who's power athlete, John talks about this sort of ad nauseum, but, um, one of the things Tom that I wanted to ask you about, and hopefully you'll talk about for power athlete nation is, um, John had mentioned it maybe in like one of our conversations about having you on the show that you're interested in cartilage regeneration and, uh, I'm being old <laughs> and beat up and falling apart. Um, as I think probably some of the, the CrossFit football folks are, um, I would love to hear some of the new science on this that you have talked about. Sure, absolutely. Um, thanks for setting that lead in because, uh, so first, this is something I'm, I'm really passionate about because in my own history, I was uh, a really strong athlete. I had to really generate a lot of force. I maybe wasn't the fastest, most explosive type of athlete. Um, I come from a, a time where you? you were just Tom. How strong? Again? Uh, how strong were you? Give me, give me, give me some numbers. Uh, so One time you told me didn't didn't you have like a nine hundred plus rack pull and like some other yeah, so, numbers? So so give give us some background so people just don't think you're an egghead. So I pulled a nine forty five uh, for a triple and a deadlift. I was gonna say, I'd say the bar the 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 bottom of the plate from the floor was maybe six inches, maybe, maybe less, you know, at that point bar bows a lot. And so when you actually, when a weight actually starts to move up, you know, there's a lot of uh, flexing of the bar, if you will. Did you say um, you pulled 945 a, pounds for a triple? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would have gotten more reps except bar uh, as it was bowing, the plates fell off. We couldn't get collars on the bar. Um, well, it's a problem we, we all wish that we had. Yeah. So yeah. I would say that I've bent a lot of uh, bars and Smith machines over the years and uh, got invited not to train at the gym anymore. Um, I was like, hey, how did I know they had fragile equipment? You know, they don't they didn't put a sign on it. And um, I've been, I was always good at deadlifting ever since I was like 12 or so. I, I knew I could pull. Uh, I can pull a lot of weight. Uh, I think before I was 15, I already pulled almost 400 pounds. And by the time I was maybe 17 or 18, I was pulling over 500 or 600 pounds. So I was always a good pull. 
Um, in terms of uh, strongman stuff, I ran, um, I think it was either, I think it was about 80 feet. I ran with 275 in each hand in about 10.6 seconds. So that was a pretty good time at that point. But now you got some of these freaks from Finland and stuff that crushed that. I did a, uh, I set an American record in an axle press where we had a, like a stainless steel type of bar. So, you know, it's, it's slippery and very smooth. It was only uh, 200 pounds, but it was really difficult to get into position. You had to take it from the ground, uh, clean it or get it up to your clavicle or shoulders in one, you know, somehow, didn't matter how. And then you push it overhead. I think I got like 22 or 23 reps. And uh, I've done, uh, I think about 310 in log press. When I was under 200 pounds and over 200 pounds, I locked out 200 kilos in log press. So the difference, the extra mass in my body weight, it helped my log press tremendously. Um, so there's been, an, I think um, I did a reverse bench about 440 pounds and a front squat a little bit more than 200 kilos. So I've done, you know, some different weird lifts over the years, but I've always been fascinated with, with, uh, strongman type lifts all around lifting. I've done a, oh, I set a, a world record in a one arm snatch. I did uh, 187 pounds with my left hand and I was trying to break um, the world record with my right hand with which was a hundred kilos. Uh, but I injured my wrist that day. And so I had a switch. And so my goal was to set a record with my right hand. I jacked up my wrist. So I had to settle for setting a record with my left hand. So, um, but I, I've got the pleasure though. Maybe the better part is I trained with Magnus for Magnuson. Um, I've seen Kazmaier work out. Like I've worked out with uh, uh, Mark Henry. Like I mean, some really strong people in my lifetime. Uh, Ed Cohen. You know, I've, I mean, these guys are freaks in nature. So, as much as I've lifted, it, it's nothing compared to when you're working out with these guys. You know, and you see they lift and how effortlessly they lift it. I watched Ed Cohen start a training program. He pulled eight, it was 799 pounds. He pulled it six times, took a two minute rest and then pulled it two more times. So he basically got roughly 800 pounds for eight reps without a belt. Okay. So, and no straps. I don't think he had straps at the time, but, and it was just, you know, that's when he's got like another 12 weeks, right, of training. So, you know, he's going to pull a hell of a lot, more than 800 pounds at the end of the cycle. So, those are the kinds of the, the cool things I've had uh, the fun of, of dealing with in my life. Nice. All right. So, it gives a little background. Um, uh, you know, and the, the cartilage stuff is really important. Uh, you know, uh, Steve's interested in it. But, I mean, this has been in the, geez, um, over 10 years that Tom and I have been friends. I mean, this has been pretty much a, a weekly, if not, you know, multiple time a week conversation we've been having for almost a decade about, uh, you know, what is the most cutting edge way to not only rehab our injuries, but repair cartilage and kind of fix and we'll really just deal about uh, regenerating the body. So, Tom, you could take it and hopefully we can summarize some of the. I mean, it's amazing to think of when you called me this one time and talked about this thing called PRP to where we are kind of presently now. It's pretty wild, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So uh, first thing I'll, I'll share with is um, when I was um, 
at my strongest for deadlifting, I remember one day working out and I could feel my bones sliding against each other in, in my, I'm talking specifically like in my knee joints. And it's not, it was not a natural feeling. It, it almost felt like, like butter melted and something was sliding on a plate. That's the best way I could explain it. And I, even though I was strong, I knew something was wrong somewhere. And I just knew that if I keep going the direction I was going, I'm gonna hurt myself to a point where, you know, there's no uh, point of no return. And so I started looking into some things about cartilage, mostly because I had a feeling something was wrong, but I didn't really have the quantitative or qualitative data to, to say what's going on inside my joints. And, um, at that point, most of my coaches just said I was tight. Um, I was inflexible. No one, you know, ever diagnosed me with arthritis. And then as I started getting MRIs, x-rays, and all different types of scans with ultrasound and other methods, I started finding I had maybe decades of damage in my joints. It just never hurt. And whether it was because of the coaches that had taught me how to block out pain, whether that was taken too far to an extreme, whether I just don't have a good awareness for that type of pain, I don't know. Um, but I, I didn't realize all the damage I had generated in my own body through my own extreme training methods. And so that's what kind of got me personally motivated, Sarah, what's happening when we do heavy loading. And one of the things I learned is that when you do a, a heavy workout, um, the cartilage in your ankle, the cartilage in your knee, the cartilage in your hip, uh, your elbow, your shoulder, it's not, we, we tend to refer to it as articular cartilage and think of it as all the same uh, type of material, but it's actually not stuff in the cartilage in the ankle is very different than the cartilage in other parts of the body, which is why it's rare, you know, it's a little bit more rare that you would hear of someone having ankle arthritis. You typically hear about, you know, knee and hip uh, much more. Um, you may hear about shoulder. You don't hear about elbow arthritis as often, even though quantitatively arthritis in the elbow joint and the knee joint is about the same. So if we if we were to measure it from scannings or images of people, to both have the same instance, yet how many people complain about elbow arthritis? It's almost nobody. And one of the things that struck out about me is, okay, what's different about the elbow versus the knee? It's low, you know, just the way we are positioned, whether we're sitting, lying, or standing, the elbow is typically in a position that it's unloaded, you know, sort of hanging at the side in, in some particular joint angle. Whereas your knee, even when you're seated, or seating rather, um, there, there's still uh, some type of load that's being transmitted through the knee, certainly not as much as when you're standing, but enough that there's like a constant uh, wear effect. So I started looking at methods of unloading the joint. I started talking to doctors from around the world. And a few things that had popped up is that the areas that where the, 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 the facilities where it supposedly had really good outcomes, there was an unloading component. So essentially, they figured out that, you know, once you put the cartilage to a lot of stress, that by taking some of the load off the cartilage, it allows the body to repair some of the damage. So then I started looking at, well, let's say you do a heavy squat workout or heavy deadlift workout. You know, how much time does it take the cartilage to actually 
kill or fight some of the inflammation from the mechanical frictional forces from the stress that workout. And the way my interpretation of the data right now is that it's probably closer to four weeks. So um, a lower time, and that's assuming like a very heavy, like, like let's say three to five sets of triples. So you have sort of one extreme, you know, heavy loading with heavy weight and, and lower reps takes time for the cartilage to heat to heal. But submaximal levels of loading, they actually help the cartilage to heal faster. Now, a lot of this data is extrapolated from rodents. So how would you translate that to humans? There's not, no one's really measuring this or studying this because if we figured out how to train people so that their cartilage can heal on its own, you now eliminate artificial joint replacements, you eliminate a lot of drugs. So there's not a strong financial motivation for people to study this. And typically the only groups that would study it would be people with a lot of money in their own research group and you have a, a small subset of interest or government. If they think, hey, if we can you know, make a change, that will save a lot of money in healthcare. So where I'm right now is uh, I think there's definitely some ways that link can be played with, um, that could dramatically prolong the life of cartilage in people. The downside to that is I think that people will maybe not gain the same level of satisfaction from training. Like if you're used to handling heavy triples every so often, psychologically, there's almost like a dependence or I wouldn't say addiction, but you get used to that and you look forward to it. And now all of a sudden, if you're removing that from the training, you know, now you have other elements in terms of the satisfaction that people get from the training experience. So that's some stuff maybe on the mechanical loading side. In terms of strategies for tissue healing on the nutritional side, um, some of the, the best things I've seen so far is vitamin mineral testing, making sure that whatever nutrients people are low in, that we actually can get them the right form. So let's say if a guy is low in vitamin D, um, he's you know he's he's going his ability to heal in multiple areas of the body are going to be challenged but specifically cartilage and bone if he's calcium when i say a guy I probably should have said man or woman because there's no I, I think in some ways women that are producing um estrogen have a have a slight protective edge over men but as, as they get older, you know, now as women are in their postmenopausal years, I think they may be at a greater risk than men in certain ways because men typically have more muscle to contribute to joint stability. And once women lose some of the hormonal protection, I think the lack of muscle works against them for the joint stability. So they're at greater risk. Um, and, and that's more my practical assessment than actually quoting stats from, you know, injury rates and surveillance uh, studies, you know, from the field. So uh, recently we've been doing, um, I guess maybe I should pause for a second and say, does anyone have any questions or any thoughts on that information I just shared? No, sounds good. Let's go. <laughs> so, all right. So the um, next thing I was going to say is there's some really, really cool data on uh, collagen peptides. Uh, Penn State, who um, you know, uh, where I attended school for a long time, they published uh, two or three papers 
where they did MRI imaging of joints after about 90 days of uh, collagen peptide supplementation, and they showed significant improvements in cartilage resurfacing or regeneration all over the body. The only thing I would say practically is let's say your knee aches and you, because you have like uh, some arthritis or some you know wear of cartilage in that joint. When you take these peptides, they're circulating around the whole body. So they're gonna you know go to wherever you have the greatest number of viable chondrocytes. Those are like your worker cells that could rebuild cartilage. So those guys will build cartilage faster, probably in a joint that you don't have any pain in. Now, that's still a good thing, but practically, you didn't have pain, so you didn't know there was a problem, so you wouldn't know that it's no longer an issue because you can't feel anything. Um, the joints that ache the most, chances are they have the lowest number of viable chondrocytes that can make more cartilage. So what I would think happens is people may take it. They don't feel it helping their good joints, and their bad joints maybe didn't feel better fast enough because uh, I'm I, I know I'm very impatient I want results yesterday and I think a lot of guys particularly power athletes you know we're wired and trained to be explosive and powerful we're not thinking endurance and long term we're thinking instantly right now but some of the data points to you know three months or longer in terms of regenerating cartilage and the joints have more damage and that assuming those joints have viable chondrocytes. When you get to a point like someone's bone on bone, you have other issues than just cartilage there. You have problems with subchondral bone. You have problems with maybe some of the bony tissue, maybe some of the ligaments, muscular tissue around a joint. So all of those areas have to be addressed. You can't just say, oh, take some collagen peptides and magically everything else will happen. So outside of collagen peptides, you have things like... Um, there's a newer version of Boswellia, and this has been shown to inhibit multiple inflammatory pathways. So uh, sort of like the cyclooxygenase 2 pathway and the lipooxygenase pathway, it inhibits these multiple pathways that interfere with the body's ability to rebuild cartilage. And this form of Boswellia by itself has been shown to increase cartilage thickness. So now imagine you have, you know, Boswellia, and now you have these collagen peptides. And there's some interesting data that when you combine with Boswellia, maca, cat's claw, berberine, some other types of herbs, that you almost get like a synergistic effect where the combination of all these different things is better than the individual component herbs by themselves. So what I've been working on right now is there. I, there's not a single company that's combined all this research and made a product with the actual dosages used in the research. So you find companies that maybe have like a little bit of fairy dust of each ingredient. It's got the names, but it's too small to really, you know, each individual ingredient to do anything. And you have other companies that uh, maybe have a lot of one ingredient and nothing of the others. So what I'm trying to do is actually 
put all this stuff together in one product so that now people take one product that actually will work from, from the nutritional side to actually regenerate cartilage. Um, but it, it may be, you know, if it's a powder, it might be like a scoop. Um, if it's capsules, you know, it might be like 10 to 20 capsules at one time. So I don't know practically what the best form will be yet because I'm still trying to fine tune the formulation. But the, the data overall is pretty impressive. Nice. So you let me know when you when you come out with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll keep everybody abreast of it because uh, it, it's one of those things that you know we we try to think preventively. Like I hear guys, say, I'm taking glucosamine chondroitin right now, even if I don't have any joint pain because I don't want to get joint pain later. And I think there's I I, I admire the approach because it's it's sensible and it's smart you know let's prevent a health problem from occurring the challenge though was that there's a lot of reasons why people may get arthritis or get you know some cartilage damage on the mechanical side let's just say i'm overtraining well it doesn't matter how many supplements or drugs i take i'm simply breaking down cartilage faster than i can repair it right so i could i could be doing injections daily i can do all kinds of stuff in my joints it's still not an account of the fact that i'm overtraining so there's got to be some sensibility on the loading side and then on the other side if i'm missing an essential building block like if i'm low in boron or calcium or vitamin D or some other, maybe a mineral that's a component of the enzymes that help, you know, with some of the collagen uh, protein synthesis that makes up the cartilage, I'm going to have an inability to repair cartilage because I'm missing a basic building block. And on a side note here, there was excellent data that was presented uh, about two years ago at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting where uh, um, an MD and a PhD shared some data where um, you know, right now when, when people get their knee or their hip replaced, typically the orthopedic surgeon you know, does an MRI, says, hey, your joint is messed up. The only option I'm giving you is we're going to replace it. And then they replace it. And that's pretty much, they don't give a whole lot of guidance. They may give some physical therapy. So these guys said, you know, with all the results that we see with nutrition enhancing muscle protein synthesis after exercise, what if what can we do from a nutritional perspective to enhance recovery of pair of tissue after joint replacement therapy? So essentially what they did is they gave really high dose essential amino acids they gave uh, a sugar, sugar with it, and the rationale is they wanted to spike insulin as cheaply as possible, so it wasn't an expensive, you know, intervention. And the insulin spike would drive amino acids into cells faster, and then they would have um, some precursors for cartilage, like collagen peptides, some uh, hydroxylysine, hydroxyproline, things like that. So they. Um, they put this stuff together and they just call it oral regenerative blend, ORB. That's just the name the docs came up with. It's nothing magical. But they gave it to the patients three times a day. And this is on top of the patients eating all their regular food. So all of this truly was a supplement. It was not in place of anything else. So a couple of things about that is normally 
you know, we don't think there's benefits of extra amino acids if you're eating enough protein. That's the more traditional medical approach. I think on a physiology side, I think, um, you know, certain sports nutritionists and physiologists that do research on amino acid, nitrogen balance and exercise performance, they would disagree because they would say, well, there's individual and collective benefits of some of these amino acid formulas on tissue repair and recovery. But with the... Uh, what this ORB blend did is accelerated repair of tissue. And this is now, um, I would say it's more bony tissue and muscular tissue, maybe some ligament tendon stuff. Like there's, there's really not cartilage in those joints because the joint totally joint has been gone or replaced. But accelerated repair four to eight times beyond people doing nothing at all. And so what it revealed is that nutrition is vital to repair of tissue. And, and so from that, you know, we have data now that shows nutrition is important for muscle recovery, other guys from the nervous system, other guys now ligaments and tendons and cartilage. And now what these guys have shown is really bone after joint replacement surgery. So one of the things we've kind of tried to put together here is when we have people that are undergoing surgery or maybe trying to avoid surgery is we do these really, you know, high dose. I say high dose because you're talking about 45 grams of essential amino acids per day. So that's 15 grams three times a day on top of eating. So compared to what people generally do, that's, that's a, a decent amount of extra amino acids, but it dramatically accelerates uh, repair. It, it looks like of everything that's been studied so far. And part of it makes sense. You've given people you're giving people building blocks they cannot make. So now you've eliminated the weak links for tissue synthesis for any tissue. So I realize that's a little bit maybe off the beaten Tom, path, but uh, Tom, Tom, I thought it would be helpful. Tom, would you recommend like for uh, the essential amino acids, like the, the post-workout, pre-workout, during the workout, like what would you recommend them? And then, uh, you know. So I so I guess part of the challenge in answering that question is you got to know what else people are doing during the day. And, and the studies that have been done, remember, most of the time the subjects are fasted. So when they do like a pre-workout, post-workout intervention, one of the things about that that is not realistic is the people, the subjects going into the studies, they have lower than normal amino acid levels in their blood because they've been fasting, right? We typically, we recommend most people, you know, in a free living outside world is, is, is you know, you, you get nutrients in small amounts of nutrients over as many hours as possible. So you make your body bulletproof. So at any point in time, your body needs vitamin B1, bam, it's there. If it needs an essential amino acid, bam, it's there. So assuming that a guy is, let's say, doing some type of, um, you know, small meals six to eight times a day, there may not even be a need for him to do pre and post workout nutrition because that person already has the nutrient levels in their blood based upon their normal diet. Now let's trans you know, let now let's switch gears and say, well, this guy maybe didn't eat breakfast today and he's not eating for the workout. Well now I think the pre workout you know, uh, shake is going to be extremely important for helping that person to repair and, and to um, recover from training. So I would say in general, the data is about six to 10 grams of essential amino acids before training. And then 
immediately after training, you might do another six to 10 grams of essential amino acids. And then at some point after that, like maybe, uh, I would say uh, about an hour after the post-workout shake, maybe a solid meal or another shake. Depends on, you know, if this is a scenario where you're trying to um, induce muscle hypertrophy or weight gain, then you want to sneak in as many feedings as possible with the understanding that there's some physiological limits. Um, some With our muscle cells, they have these doorways referred to as amino acid transporters. Those doorways are regulated by a number of variables, but one of the variables is uh, the concentration of the given amino acid. So let's say you have this amino acid transporter for glutamine. Once glutamine inside the cell gets to a certain concentration, in other words, it increased, it kind of closes that doorway or, or that transporter is now uh, blocked or no longer open. So it's closed. So then you're not going to be able to get more glutamine into that fiber. So because we have a lot of muscle fibers, then we kind of rationalize, well, I'll do a feeding now. I get whatever's open and then I'll do another quick feeding in a little bit. And whatever other fibers have their, you know, the transport mechanisms open, now I'll be able to hit those guys. Uh, what I would say, though, is that the bigger someone gets as far as muscle, the more extreme methods they have to employ in order to continue to grow because there are cellular governing mechanisms that limit hypertrophy. You know, the reason why you see guys like, you know, Ronnie Coleman and Jay Cutler get to the sizes they do is – a tremendous amount of drugs, but also a tremendous amount of overloading the body with so many different amino acids, you're maximizing every opportunity to get something into a cell. Well, I mean, is there a gene- uh, like certain genetic aptitude to, to growth? I mean, think about this, like um, you could take like two guys, for example, and you could probably give somebody the same schedule that like a Ronnie Coleman or Jay Cutler's on and still do the same feeding and they would not get the same results. So obviously there has to be some mechanism for for growth. I mean, certain people maybe have more muscle cells or more potential, but you know, based on those doorways and something. I mean, I like I. It, it's always interesting when you start uh, looking at people, at least that are kind of on the outside talking about steroids. They just think that oh, you take the steroids and instantly the results happen. And what's interesting is uh, you know, there's plenty of guys down at the local gym that take drugs that never look the way they do or never really ever really reach the goals. And you have other guys that maybe do less, may do more and reach these phenomenal goals. And so uh, is there a, uh, you know, like just a certain genetic adaptation? Is there something that becomes the kind of the barrier to entrance for this? Yeah, well, keep in mind, Ronnie Coleman, I'm using him as an example, his first Olympia, he was 10th. The way he looked then versus now is dramatically different. So, on a genetic side of things, you have, okay, you know, what can your body do with you provide it? And I see three plus pound guys that come in that are fairly lean and not on drugs because I know because I'm testing them and they got all these things wrong with them, but they're still muscular and strong enough to play in the NFL, which, you know, that's, uh, you know, no one else is going to be the average guy, you know, he would be maybe, uh, you know, laying in bed exhausted or he might be hurt or something, you know, he wouldn't be at that level. I think what your body does with nutrients, 
then you have how your body responds to training. Uh, maybe genetically, some guys just respond better to lower uh, to lower reps, heavy weight, and maybe other guys may just respond better to higher reps. So if, if depending on how you respond, if you're doing the other protocol, you're never going to demonstrate your muscular potential because you're not providing the stimulus that's ideal for your body. But then you have, when you start adding in drugs, you have receptor distribution, receptor subtypes, like some, you know, we think of androgen receptors, they're not all the same. Some are a little bit different than others. So then you have, how does someone respond to drugs? And it's clear as day. Some guys take a little bit of testosterone and they just get amazing muscular gains and other guys take a lot of testosterone and nothing really seems to happen. So there, there's a lot of, I guess, areas along this whole process where genetics could have some impact. Tom, didn't, didn't you do a study where uh, some guys were taking some exogenous testosterone and that the, uh, the effects were greatly diminished based on sleep patterns and also on nutrition? Yes. So, um, it, it wasn't really a study per se. It was more some, so we have, uh, we have like a men's health clinic here. So basically we have guys that come to the clinic because they have some type of male health issue, like erectile dysfunction and stuff like that. And a lot of these guys, they're already taking testosterone. They're ready. They already may be taking uh, Viagra Cialis. So on paper you think, okay, the guy's taking testosterone. He's taking Cialis or something. He should have no problems. And what I've been finding is, you know, when we were trying to figure out what's going on, why isn't this guy? So he was put on his stuff by another doctor. He's not seen any progress. So he comes here because he's hoping we can figure out why he's having, we'll get an erection. And then we look at this stuff and, you know, on paper, it looks. Like there should be no issues. And so we start looking at the production of a cytokine called interleukin-1. And when you don't get enough sleep, interleukin-1 goes up really high. Interleukin-1 is linked to all kinds of different cardiovascular diseases, uh, from a stroke to a heart attack. It's linked to arthritis. And it's also linked to erectile dysfunction. So, you know, the speculation we have is that, okay, even if a guy is taking testosterone, he's not getting enough sleep, you know, the interleukin-1 would interfere with some of this. Another thing that interleukin-1 will mess up is, is there part of the an inflammation interferes with the body's ability to utilize glucose. So um, we work with these guys to improve their sleep, and we work with them to improve their ability to clear glucose out of the blood. And almost 100% of these guys, once we achieve those two goals, like they have better sleep, and it doesn't really matter how we do it, um, but ideally we're doing it in a way that does not use drugs because there's other problems from the drug use, so like Ambien and stuff like that. Uh, but we get the sleep improved and the glucose clearance improved. They all say the same thing, you know, uh, better quality erections than they've experienced in the past. And uh, they're just amazed at, you know, the difference it makes with, with really not a whole lot of effort. So better nutrition, better sleep, better erections. <laughs> That's the summary of it. Yes. Okay. I know it's, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, we've talked about this for years and, you know, uh, uh, Steve is also a, a doctor of psychology and, 
you know, we, we discussed sleep to a great extent and even what the stuff that uh, we went and did with Dr. Jin. I mean, there's a direct correlation to sleeping a certain amount of hours, sleeping within the circadian rhythm and the body's ability to not only restore itself, the, the brain to cool. I mean, it's just, it's just one more and more we get into this stuff that, um, you know, and I, I, I shot you guys, uh, idea about, you know, trying to, uh, you know, like how do we basically repair our athletes? Like what type of things are we going to do to, you know, help our guys move forward? And, uh, you know, I, I really think it starts with sleep. I mean, the more and more I do research and the more information I get, I mean, it seems that like the biggest difference between, you know, you know, what people are doing in terms of, uh, you know, health, fitness and, and performance and gains really goes back to this sleep thing and it's uh I, you know it's gonna be some information is gonna come out like 20 years from now that it's like dude uh all this technology all the things all the distractions whether it be tv and movies and internet uh everything that we do is basically killing us because we're not sleeping like we used to sure yeah um we we do one of our other um, areas that we deal with here is uh people that have excessive fatigue that's unexplained and I can't tell you how many um, female executives that for a living to do a lot of reading of uh, contracts online and stuff, like on their, on their tablet or their notebook or their desktop computer. And, you know, we do standard testing and everything seems okay. There might be some low vitamins or minerals. Um, but uh, I started coming across some papers on um, eye strain related fatigue. And one of the things that, you know, the the flicker rates of the monitors and, and the different displays that people read, when we were reading, you know, paper, there's no flicker rate. You know, like you see the, the paper is what it is. It's not changing so many times, uh, you know, per cycle per second or something. And there's um, some data that our brain, even though visually we may not notice it, our brain can interpret some of this stuff. And um, the the various nerves of the brain undergo some minor type of uh, changes. They refer to some of that as plasticity. Some of the muscles around the eyes as they're trying to help with uh, focusing. But the, the consequence of all of these would seemingly minor events is that people have uh, difficulty with managing their energy levels. So it's almost like a leak of energy from their system and they're so tired, but it interferes with their sleep in a way that even when they sleep, they don't wake up rested. And, uh, you know, if I had to, um, I've looked at data on sleeping and exercise nutrition, and if I had to quantify, like, importance for me, I would say intelligent exercise has probably got the single most uh, significant value because a lot of things from exercise uh, can compensate for poor diet. Um, and some of the things from exercise, when it's done appropriately, it could counter some of the negative consequences of poor sleep. So if I had to make a choice, you know, work out or sleep, I'd probably work out. But ideally, if it was, you know, perfect world, you would do the right amount of sleep for your body, the right amount of exercise, the appropriate type of exercise for your fitness goals, and then the right type of nutrition plan for your body's, you know, nutrient and energy needs. Um, but sometimes it's easier said than done, you know, when you, with everyday life responsibilities, 
not not a whole lot of us can pick and choose when we're going to do things, you know, whenever we want or something. Huh? Nice. Yeah. So um, feeling tired so, and drained and just low energy, and it's your day to get to the gym. Get to the gym. Get in there. Get your. I think John, you wrote a. You wrote a talk to me, Johnny, about that. Um, yeah, well, we that, like if you don't go to the gym that day, it could be the day like that you get your PR or something, right? Well, I mean, uh, there's always this problem, and, and you, you guys know this, that you know, have wives and kids and jobs and travel and all this other bullshit that seems to get in the way of what I really want to do, which is uh, lift weights and fucking be jacked. And um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, like it's you know, it blows me away. Like I, I said, a, a really good training block the last you know six seven weeks of training. And then all of a sudden I had to fly to Savannah and I come home and, uh, you know, got home at two o'clock in the morning and the kids woke me up at six and, uh, you know, had to finish all the tech stuff. And so I spent three days trying to go through and finish out all of our, you know, payroll and all that. And by the time I get to the gym, it's back on Wednesday and you go in and I have, you know, I put three crappy workouts together and then, you know, the kid's birthday on set on the, you know, that weekend. And it's like all of a sudden it's just like an entire week just got melted. And, you know, you're in an airplane and you're, you know, you're trying to eat and thank God I, I uh, pack all of our jerky and all the, the well food co stuff, uh, when I travel. And really that's what well food company was designed for was for travel snacks for the, for the power athlete. And, uh, it just kind of fucks it all up. And, uh, what happened is, is I I'm getting frustrated with that and especially like training within a, you know, like a program, like I, uh, I'm not big on just random training. I'd like to have a clear defined goal that this is where I'm starting and this is where I'm going. And, um, you know, but the problem is, is that you're not always going to, you know, based on life's problems and we always call it the life deload that you need something to do. And so I think on talk to me, Johnny, I kind of came up with, uh, two programs that I do. And it's just kind of a, uh, you know, just two days that if I, you know, if I come in and things aren't right or I'm, you know, I find myself in a strange city with, you know, and I don't know what to do. You know, we kind of put together, there was two workouts that we had and it's, uh, uh, it's basically a big push, big pull thing. And you can get in and out of there in about, you know, 45 minutes. And as long as I can get to do it, I know when we travel to Europe or any of the international stuff, I mean, our big thing is, um, get off the plane, get the car and go work out as fast as we can. And so we'll usually drive to the gym, work out. And then, uh, after that, just go get something to eat and then hopefully go to the hotel and relax. Cause I find that after sitting on an airplane, the last thing I want to do is work out, but it's actually the best thing I can do to get some sweat going and just kind of get that blood pumping. But, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's funny when I was, uh, I, playing, playing in the NFL was such a great experience because it was the most selfish time in my life. Um, I remember like getting up and like, weighing myself in the morning. And if I was, if I was too light, I'd, I'd call the guy and, uh, or, you know, my, my training partner or whoever I was working with and be like, Hey, I'm going to come in a little bit later. I want to eat a lot before I come in and lift weights. Uh, you know, if I was tired, I would take a nap in the off season. I, I took a nap between like two and three every single day. And, uh, you know, I, if, if I was you know, not feeling good that weekend or if I was tired, I just relaxed. And, uh, you know, it was really good. I mean, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, to get, work with guys like Tom for nutrition and diet. And I, it just was super selfish. But then all of a sudden you get out of the NFL, you start working and, uh, you know, you have family, you have the kids and you realize that, uh, you know, that doesn't pay the bills or doesn't really jive when your two little ones get up at six in the morning and, you know, trying to get you up to go play on the piano. So 
Um, <laughs> we, yeah, I did. I tell you so for uh, their birthday. Um, and uh, Tom actually sent my girls some pretty good uh, uh, birthday gifts. I don't know if Tom even knew it. His biz, uh, <laughs> the gal. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> it was pretty hilarious. Uh, the gal that runs Tom's office is pretty awesome. And uh, all of a sudden, we look and there's uh, two presents for our girls for their birthday. So we're laughing. We open it up, and like one was like uh, like these little like kind of um, uh, I guess like little like mini sleeveless ski vests. And then a uh, little mini Ugg boots. And, uh, dude, we were laughing because the girls wear the Ugg boots like uh, every day. And they're so excited because they see their mom <laughs> wearing Ugg boots. And so now they all like my, like Kate and uh, the girls have their Ugg boots. And I just kind of shake my head and laugh. And I'm like, oh, man, it started so young. <laughs> but uh, somebody got my little girls. They got them a piano. So it's like a little like color coded, like little kids piano. So I like kind of propped it up so they can play it and they stand. And, uh, they literally, I was sleeping the other morning. Like I got home real late. They kind of come in and I'll try to get on the bed and said, dad, daddy, daddy piano. And so we got to go out there and we play the piano and it's, uh, it's definitely pretty hilarious. I, I, I had no concept that, uh, my little girls would be this much into music. And then, uh, my one little girl will play and my other little girl will actually hold like something. It doesn't matter what it is and try to sing into it. Like, like they're trying to have like a tandem, uh, like their first <laughs> music group. And I'm like, you guys are two years old and you're already trying to put together this stuff. So we started watching like the voice and American <laughs> idol. And so you think you can dance all these shows and they're like completely fascinated by the voice. They like sit there and they're like so excited to watch the voice. And, um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's cute and it's super cool. And I, I, I really hope that, uh, you know, they get into the music stuff, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Tom, thank, thank you very much for the gifts. That was awesome. But, uh, um, so my long winded stuff, but, um, no, I, I think like, uh, you know, the, you know, the advent and more importantly, understanding how to train and what's necessary. Tom made a great thing. Like, does your training fit your fitness goals or your performance goals? And, you know, there's sometimes, and we all run into this, there's sometimes what I want to do and what I have time to do, or more importantly, this is what I want to do, but this maybe is not what I'm physically able. I mean, I, dude, I, I would love to snatch clean and jerk every day, but just based on some of the limitations in my knee and shoulder, I knew that doing the snatch clean and jerk and training Olympic movements and doing that, that level of training, uh, was just wrecking my shoulder and uh, wrecking my knee. And I just, uh, dude, physically, I, I, I can't wear out my shoulder anymore. So I've had to really be real smart and limit the overhead stuff and, uh, you know, use a little bit more dumbbells and use some other different positions for the overhead. And, uh, you know, I'll still pull heavy deadlifts and a lot of stuff. It's just, um, you know, I'll do more dynamic stuff and we do more of the deficit pulls just because the amount I, uh, from all these years of the banging, I just can't really do the full variances of lifts anymore. So, it's one of those things where I've had to make a deal with myself and you almost like, all right, I know what I want to do, but I know what I physically can do. And what's also interesting working with Tom is, you know, he's imaged all my joints and we've gone through and been doing stuff for a long time. And I can actually physically see the damage inside my joint. I'm like, shit, uh, next time we go get something done or I get this imaged again, I don't want it to be worse and have him look at me and be like, well, what have you been doing? We've been doing all this stuff and the, and the, the joint looks worse. And I'm like, well, I've been uh, doing snatch, clean, and jerk and really loading this thing. I mean, we had a deal where I think we squatted. I mean, we did our, our uh, 1RM program, and I think I squatted between 550 and 600 for like 18 days in a row. And uh, I knew when we got done with that program, I was like, uh, I'm sure my knee's going to look pretty wrecked next time I go out and have something done. So I think, uh, you know, training smart and really matching the performance goals and sleeping and eating and doing all those things are really the – safeguards that ensure you to be able to train the way you want. And then hopefully you, you guys get there, you know, you end up like Tom and I, 
And, um, you know, Tom is actually the only person that I know that might be more physically broken than me. So, I mean, he's definitely more emotionally broken than me. So, I mean, I, I you know, Tom and I are friends. I'm like, he's uh, way, he's, he's a bigger emotional disaster and he's physically, I mean, like Tom's, you know, Tom's got a knee similar to mine and his hips uh, got some issues and his, and uh, his, his elbow, whereas it's my shoulder and knee. But what's, uh, what's interesting is, you know, here's a guy that, you know, pulled, you know, 900 plus for reps. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about stuff and he's like, well, dude, I, uh, I, you know, and we battle with this where he's like, you know, all of a sudden I start training and like, dude, I want to put that weight on. I want to go. But I directly know that if I start loading the joints and doing what I really want to do, it's going to be counterproductive to the things that we've done to effectively heal ourselves. So I think what we're secretly waiting for is some magical chamber we can just go into and like zap you with a ray and 10 minutes later I come out and everything's healthy. And then it'll give me the the ability to just basically go back to the gym and completely destroy myself. And as long as I can keep getting into that like magical chamber, I'll be fine. But until we find that magical magical chamber or Tom creates it, we're going to have to be a lot smarter. Yeah. You know, one thing I'll interject with John is that, uh, you know, how many times I hear people say I they'll train by feel. And I don't know if you remember years ago, the weeder instinctive training principle. Yes. <laughs> so these guys go about how to feel. And one thing is that's absolutely clear is you can't feel damage in every part of your body. You know, if I had known what was going on in my body, I totally would have changed how I was training and stuff like that. And uh, I think by the time people start to feel something, it's pretty significant. Maybe there's not arthritis. It might be something else. Maybe there's just a lot of inflammation. Um, but it's, uh, I don't think how you feel is, is a good way. And the reason why I just mentioned that is, is there's so many people that come in that I, that we see here, that's the only objective variable. And it's really not objective. It's subjective, right? Like, Oh, I feel okay. I'm going to crush it. And one of the things I learned, um, or one of the areas that I got introduced to years ago as a Russian physiologist, uh, I believe his name was Val Nesetkin, but I could be mistaken on the name, but he, he had this thing called a mega wave where he came up when the idea was, and and I get a, a physiological assessment like right now and use as the basis for planning your workout because at the time, um, Overtraining, overreaching type protocols, you know, were really were really popular. And the idea is, we're going to push your body a little bit more. We can handle now. Give you some taper period, maybe one to three weeks, depending upon what we're looking at. You mean super compensation? Yeah, at the end of that, you would super compensate at the end of that um, tapering phase. And so the problem with that is the magnitude of change is so large it's very difficult to predict the end result. If I'm going to drive you into the ground and somehow hope you're going to be, you know, five to 20% better than your lifetime best PR and something, you know, weeks from now, there's too much potential for error or random variables to affect that outcome. And so from a, 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 you know, a one of the things I liked about the protocol that Val was proposing is that, you don't make as many mistakes because we're going to measure you now and based on how you are right now, that determines what we're going to do for training. The limitation with that is that's a great way for one-on-one training. But now when you're dealing with groups of people, 
it, it just, it's very difficult to pull it off to, to, you can't really do that. You know, you can't take 10 people and have each person take 20 minutes to see where they are, you know, to work out. Well, and, so, and also uh, when you're dealing with that many people, I mean, we found people that, you know, like you can put a uh, hundred people on the same workout plan and you're going to have, you know, 40 people in the middle that think it's the right, you're going to have, you know, 10 people there that are going to be like, no, 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 I need to do double that. And you're going to have, you know, uh, the other rest of the people that are like, this is way too much. And so, you know, and, and you, you know, this from dealing with different a- athletes, I mean, shit, Tom, you've tested just about every professional athlete I've ever known. And, and then some, I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, like there are guys that, you know, work out, uh, three times a day and there's guys that work out three times a week and, uh, you know, everybody gets, uh, you know, plays at a high level. And it's just, it's just interesting when you start talking about these broad strokes and, you know, and we run into this stuff all the time with our CrossFit football power athlete stuff. Like how do you design a program for the masses without, like you're saying, without seeing that person every day, without taking some daily metrics on recovery, you know, without matching a diet. And, and it's something where you almost have to write a program towards the middle or maybe a little bit higher and then kind of uh, tell people, Hey, this is what we want to do, but if it's too much, you're going to have to adjust it. You need to kind of have some changes. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting, but I, I, I know that we did, a uh, when I was in college, we used to do that stuff. Like we had, a um, what is it? The, the grip test where we used to have to squeeze, uh, and it would measure yeah. what it's called. And, uh, a hand grip dynamometer. Yeah. We, we would use that when we were, uh, you know, they, we had a baseline for it. And if you came in and you were within, you know, 90% of your baseline, then you were, you know, uh, we knew we were more recovered. I mean, you come in some days and you couldn't generate anything and it was like 60%. And it was like, okay, well, I know I need to be a little bit smarter and maybe I'm not going to have the same output. You come in one day and all of a sudden you're 10% over your best you know, then maybe it's time to go for the, for the PR, but you know, uh, and then he, even that stuff gets disproven. Cause I mean, there's been days where I've come in in the gym and we've all done this where all of a sudden you think you're like, Hey man, I'm just going to come in and squat the bar. I'm just going to come in and do the bare minimum just to say I was here and you start warming up. And next thing you know, you set a world, you know, your, your lifetime best on a day where you didn't think you were going to do anything. So it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to judge. And I, I, I think, uh, as a, as a coach, and this is why, you know, with the Russians, especially, uh, and all the, you know, Olympics and you, you look at all these different athletes, I mean, they work one-on-one with a coach that works with them for years. And that coach knows those athletes front and back, you know, they can come in and watch the way they walk in the door and know whether or not this is going to be a good day. And, um, you know, that's part of the deal of being a coach. Sure. Yes. It's, uh, I was talking with, uh, someone yesterday about uh, a buddy of mine, Tim McClellan. Uh, I've over the years, the athletes that I've had the pleasure of working with that Tim was also coaching. We'd seen some, I mean, freakish results, guys gaining, I mean, significant amounts of muscle, um, guys getting really stronger or, or raising their level of their game. And so someone was asking me, how is it when you two guys work with together, you get these crazy results, with these guys, and there's no, you know, they're not taking drugs or anything. And my response is that, you know, one of the things I observed about him is he really understands how to connect with the human that he's coaching. And one of the limitations for me is I've been trained my whole life how to measure stuff inside of people. So I'm connecting with people's blood cells. I'm connecting with their vitamin and mineral levels or their hormones, but I don't 
you know, connect with them as a human because I'm looking at all these verbals. You are, you are one of the biggest, most, uh, you are one of the biggest people person or you're one of the biggest, I guess, uh, people person I've ever met. I've never seen you not connect with people. So, I mean, you, you might be uh, big in the lab, but dude, you forget we've, we've been out drinks. I've seen you run game on girls like nobody's business. <laughs> so, uh, but we're talking about athletes and coaching right now. Not that my uh, late night festivities there. So one of the things that um, what Tim would do though is he would really get to understand what motivates this person in a way that I haven't really seen a whole lot of people able to do. So it's almost like he knows what strings to pluck to get this guy or this woman to get that extra percentage out of them in training and stuff that he, he pays attention enough to make sure that not um, like pushing it and stuff like that. And so what I was going is I, I think there's um, a, psycholo- a psychological component there that oftentimes, you know, we talk about training that maybe isn't really looked at or, or considered you know, you have the best program in the world, but if your client doesn't believe in you or believe in what you're doing, right, they're going to be combative, resistant, they may not comply, so they're really not going to get the best results. But if you could, you know, connect with them in a way where they understand and and they buy into what you're you're saying, hey, I think this could help you, and here's why, I think then that. And, you know, it's, there's one more variable that contributes to the overall effectiveness of what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. So, uh, so if, if you could give us one nugget of information that dra- dramatically improves everybody's performance, like like go back into like the Incladon uh, Rolodex of, uh, of, of all the studies, I mean, I remember one time we were talking and uh, you had just downloaded like 47,000 studies on something and just gone through them uh, in like three days. But like what like single <laughs> most important thing, if somebody said to you, Tom, tell me right now, what's the single most important thing I can do to improve my performance? So without knowing anything about the person in a, you know, in advance or something, I would say uh, – Man, I would go to something basic like either uh, adequate food intake or vitamin and mineral testing. That would be so, uh, one of the two things. What about like and the reason why I say that a fasted diet? Like, uh, like you know, we were we were talking about the intermittent fasting where you're having guys sure. that are basically not eating for 18 hours and training in a fast state and talking about sure. performance gains with it. I remember when we talked about it, you're like, that's there. There's no the the data doesn't support that. Yeah, so here's what I'll say. Every study I've ever looked at, whether it's uh, power athletes, guys looking to lift weights, guys looking for muscle hypertrophy, endurance, fed conditions, you outperform fasted conditions. Now, in every day, so outside of research, everyday world, people come in, we're talking to them. I have people all the time say, well, I think I play better or perform better or I train better when I'm fasted or when I don't you know, eat something. And I think part of that is they may have uh, have a reaction to food. That reaction is either a food allergy, a food hypersensitivity, or they have some type of microorganism that when they eat certain foods, the organism becomes active. And so then they feel uncomfortable. So the reason why they may feel better as an individual when they don't eat 
is because they're making the wrong food selection or wrong choice that, you know, there's a reaction that they're creating through lack of knowledge. They just don't know that this food is affecting them. If you eliminate, you know, uh, the microbiology aspect, if you eliminate the food reaction aspect, whether it's an allergy or hypersensitivity, proper nutrient timing is critical to maximize results from training. But, you know, and, and one of the things like all these guys that talk about intermittent fasting and stuff like that, when you have a problem, you could have a lot of potential solutions for a given problem in, in any field. Now, what is the best or most effective solution to that problem? When it comes to human body, it's variable. I could suggest something to someone today, and based on what I know, it's a good solution for the current problem. But now the guy starts traveling. Now the guy decides, hey, I'm retiring from baseball and I'm going to become a triathlete. You know, decisions that we see people make all the time. Well, now they've changed the physiological environment. So the solution we had previously, it's no longer a good fit for their current problem. So in terms of our health, we have to remember, you know, our performance, the body is dynamic. Nothing works forever. And we just have to figure out, okay, how do we change what we're doing? You know, it's a basis for periodization, you know, peaking for our contests or something. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, you don't do the same exact workout every day in a row and, and expect to magically get better. It's the same thing with, you know, nutrition and, and maybe some other variables that, that could be manipulated in a way to get better results. All right. And then what about, I, I remember years ago, you told me the story about uh, hanging out with, uh, was it Bill Kazmaier where you guys rolled into a Walmart and he started rolling uh, frying pans? Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, that guy could. Uh... <laughs> so I, I, I was telling Denny and Playtech when, they, when I was asking him, I was like, dude, you got to ask Tom. Tom has, uh, I have some pretty good stories, but Tom's got some really good stories about, uh, and I, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you tell that one, but there was some funny stuff like that. Okay, so first, um, uh, I was, um, we were in, I think, uh, Spokane, Washington, Spokane. and it was NSA con- Spokane. Thank you. Cause uh, so, you know, when it comes to geography and time, I'm like the most ignorant guy on the planet. And, and, uh, so, well, well, and, and, and also with knowing who athletes are, I remember Tom called me once and he's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, he, he's like, I, I just got done working with this guy from the Yankees. I think they call him B rod or D rod. And like, a rod. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's him. That's him. That's him. You're, you, and then Tom's like, yeah, he's, uh, uh, I, I, I think he's pretty famous, right? I was like, yeah, he's pretty kind of a, a pretty big name. And he's like, oh, yeah. and then that was the end of it. So go, go, go on about Spokane, Washington. In my defense, you have to remember, I worked in a room with no windows for two years. Okay. It's all I'm going to say. I didn't get much outside exposure. So when, um, we're in, uh, Spokane, Washington and there's this NSCA conference and at the time, I was doing uh, strongman competitions, and uh, Bill Kazmaier had retired. He'd been retired for many years at that point. But there was uh, a couple of young guys, up-and-coming guys, that were really good. So they were doing this thing where they had these uh, these dumbbells, and they were bending rebar, and they were breaking wood and stuff like that. So uh, I had just uh, I had met Bill Kazmaier years earlier. I knew some of the other guys, so I was kind of hanging out with them. And, and what would happen was I was sitting with a bunch of people in the audience, and then they had these uh, two 180 pound dumbbells. And the deal was they wanted to get someone from the audience to 
lift them and kind of do like a farmer's walk for a certain distance. And then if that person goes, they're going to have one of the strongman competitors do it. Well, a couple of guys get up and no one can lift the dumbbells. I mean, basically it's like 360 pounds. And when the dumbbells are that low to the ground, it is harder than like a, a standard uh, farmer's walk type apparatus. So no one was doing it. So I jump up out of the audience. I grab the dumbbells and I run down the field. So Bill's I'm seeing this and he's like, who the who? He goes, Tom, that don't count. <laughs> Put them back. <laughs> so we dumbbells back because quote unquote I was a competitor so I should not have been you know lifting the dumbbells it was only for the other people so then um, I started hanging out with these guys so they had this girl punch through this wood and it was kind of impressive I was like damn she was like a tiny girl well the wood was designed in a way that it would crack easy. So now, because I'd messed with them by running with the dumbbells, Bill's going to play this joke on me. So he gets this wood that isn't as easy to crack or, or break through. And I don't know how to throw a punch. I was never a fighter or anything like that. It's like, well, you hit it like this, it'll break. Trust me. So now I go, and I got to punch this thing. Well, I, I break it, but I wind up uh, chipping a, a piece of a knuckle. So now I'm kind of pissed, so they're feeling bad. So like, all right, we're going to go out tonight. So we wind up going out to this bar. And so basically I walk through, no one says anything. I, I'm not like that much of a physically impressive type of guy. But now I got this uh, strongman competitor behind me. The kid's like six, seven or six, six. And the guy's like, damn. Then this other guy comes on. He's like same height, but bigger. And the guy's like, oh, shit. And then behind, like the fourth guy behind is Bill Kazmaier. So when Bill walks through, the guy's like, what the fuck? Like Bill's head was so big. It was it was intimidating Like when he would walk through. So we're talking, drinking some beers. And Bill that day had uh, rolled a frying pan. And I, I have never done that. I always wanted to learn how to do it. So the next day we went out and we were, I don't know what we were grabbing. Uh, I don't know if it was Walmart or a supermarket. But we grabbed some stuff, and there's all these frying pans just hanging there. And so we head over, and I'm trying to do it, and I can't roll a frying pan. Like, it's like you literally roll it up like a piece of paper. So Bill is showing me in the middle of the store, here's how you position it, and here's how you light it up, and here's how you do it. And then after that, I could roll a frying pan. So that was kind of the the, the story. It was, uh, it'd be one of those things, if you walk by and you saw these guys standing in the aisle rolling frying pans, you're like, with his rug with these guys. Plus, if you saw how big Bill was, it would be even more comical. Uh, Bill Kazmaier is probably one of the most physically impressive people I've ever seen in my life. Um, I like, I, I like the thing that tripped me out is I couldn't believe how thick his wrist was. Like, I remember oh, yeah. Like, yeah. like, like looking at his hand and like his wrist was kind of like as thick as like where his, like, uh, I guess it was like where the, the thumb connects to the rest of the hand. Like, I guess that's second knuckle down. Like everybody else, mm-hmm. their their hand curves in. Like Kaz's hand just went like into forearm. Like it was like knuckle for uh, wrist. And I remember like looking at his wrist and like the thickness of his wrist compared to his elbow. They were like it was like the same. And I'm I'm like I just I, I just couldn't like I it just was one of those things where I was like, dude, this guy is uh like like a different version of the Homo sapien. I like and I just remember when I saw him, I was like, dude, this is the biggest human and he, he was retired and an older guy and you still see him in the world's strongest man when he's doing the announcing and he's still fucking huge is the yoke on his neck i mean his traps i mean he's still a massive dude i remember uh zangus 
um, Kaz was on the, uh, the, uh, the Thompson powerlifting team that Zang has coached. And, uh, you know, the stories of him and, uh, you know, those guys and, uh, you know, Odie Wilson and, and, Tom, and uh, uh, Tom knows all these guys, too. You know, it was just <laughs> was just legendary. I mean, they, these guys were just uh, um, got a. Yeah. I, I can't remember the other guy. The guy that uh, 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 the, the uh, John Paul Sigmund was a guy from uh, Iceland, right? Yeah. That uh, won four of them, and then he uh, had some heart problem and passed away. Yeah, I mean, they're just yeah. Uh, what was the name of the other guy? Uh, uh, Bob uh, Bob Young. You know, he he was on uh, Zangus's team too. I mean, those guys are just m- massive men. Big dudes, Doug Young. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, Doug. Yeah, well, Bob Young was his brother. Yeah, no, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Doug something. I don't know if it was well, Young or. Uh, well, no, it, it was Doug Young was the power lifter, and his brother Bob Young played in the NFL. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know Kazmaier. Uh, he went to Burlington High School, which is maybe 80 miles north from here. So uh, my parents live in a town called Lake Geneva. It's maybe 20 minutes from Burlington. Um, just some of like the gossip from the area about Bill Kazmaier. Uh, he set all these high school records and powerlifting and stuff. But what always I thought was interesting was that he tried out for the Packers and he didn't make the team. And I couldn't understand, or I can't understand how a man that massive and strong couldn't make the NFL team. You know, he could I can't imagine it's not that he couldn't play it or he was he wasn't strong enough to play it. Yeah, um, but I mean it's 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 interesting and we we talk about this uh, quite often. Um, uh, football is not a game of strength. I mean it's it's just not a game. It, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean we had what's his name? Uh, 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 Brock uh, Lesnar. Yeah, Lesnar, you know, who got a tryout with the uh, the Vikings. We went up there and scrimmaged against him, and uh, he had no fucking concept of how to play football. I mean, we, I remember we lined up in one on one drills, and we're just killing this dude. And when we went out on the field and actually got to play. I mean, our third string, our backups were fucking raping this guy. I can imagine, like Brock Lesnar. I mean, he probably looks he's big for UFC standards, or when he was in the UFC. But I mean, if he'd lined up against you guys, you know. NFL lineman, three hundred plus. I mean, he was, he was just tiny then. Yeah, yeah, he was probably in like the two sixties, and they were trying to play him as a down tackle. And the problem is, you know, you're going in, and like I remember, uh, you know, for me, I would think I was in my sixth or seventh year, so I'm, you know, thirty years old. I, you know, uh, three hundred plus pounds, and this is what I do for a living. And I remember uh, lining up in my stance and set, and like literally, like coming off the ball, and his first move was straight up, and he tried to like grapple me around the side of like a, like around the shoulder. And, uh, you know, the last thing you want to ever do is basically stand up and give me your chest because I put my, I remember putting my helmet through his chin and, uh, literally the first thing it hit was the back of his head on the ground. And like, it, you know, the coach comes running over at him and he's like, dude, you can't stand straight up. He goes, you, you know, you're not going to grab these guys around the shoulders and wrestle them. I mean, you know, dude, like the last thing you do is you let, you let me get my hands inside, let me lift you off the ground. And then, uh, some one-on-one pass rushed up, same thing, set back. He stood straight up and, you know, like just that, not that, you know, that, that physical field awareness of not keeping your knees bent and not keeping in that position, like not keeping that good athletic position was, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to teach somebody that doesn't come from this background to do it. And, 
you know, he, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't know how big he was when he wrestled. I didn't know if he had to clean up to come to the NFL. I don't know anything about it, but he just wasn't the same beast that we had, you know, that we had seen in terms of some other things, you know. Well, but what uh, about like Kazmaier? I mean, you would think you would think that he would be able to make up for any kind of deficiency he had in, in football technique just by his pure freaking strength. No, it's I'm telling you, man, it's uh, it's very it's two different things. But, you know, I mean, uh, it's it's cool. So um, are you guys All right. how you guys doing? We look like we're about done. I say that's about it. We're out. We've went way over our time, but that's all right. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. Um, Thanks, Tom, for having us. Tom, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great. Tom, uh, thank you, guys. Awesome. Oh, thank yeah, you, hey, guys, hey. and uh, look forward to if we could do this again. And cool. Hey, Tom, Tom, can you give me an uh, email where they can get a, a hold of you and an address on, a, on the web address? Um, so probably the best thing to do would go to uh, either humanhealthspecialist.com. If people have like a health concern or human performance specialist.com, if they're, you know, interested more in performance and stuff like that. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. You have a great day. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Tom. Take Bye. care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Tom. <laughs> see you guys. Awesome. Yeah. See you, man. Later. Thanks a lot, guys. Yep.